Welcome to the Weathervane podcast. I'm Brian McTeer from Weathervane Music, here again with my special guest, our good old friend, yours and my, Peter English. Peter and I recorded these conversations back in early 2014, and we're sharing them now, partially in anticipation of Peter's forthcoming new endeavor, which Peter's going to tell us about now. Tell us, Peter. Tell us. So if you've been listening to all of these episodes, and I apologize because I've told you about this six different times, but I'm working on a new podcast. It's a narrative journalism look at the music industry, and it's called The Long Play. It's about what it takes to make your passion into your career. And this is coming out in the fall, am I correct? You are correct, Brian. What we're listening to now is actually a precursor to that. These conversations were recorded here in Philadelphia, and they're great, introspective, reflective conversations with recording artists and engineers about what they do to improve and sustain their craft. Today, we're talking to Dave Hartley. Dave is an interesting musician. He's best known as the bass player in The War on Drugs, which you might have heard of, but he's also a super talented songwriter recording under the name Nightlands. That is correct. And Shaking Through fans will remember Dave as the guest bass player in episodes with Torres, Stephen A. Clark, uh, and even way, way, way back in one of the pilot episodes with BC Camplay. Uh, Dave's career has had him working on his own music, as well as filling out roles in other people's projects. We'll even hear him talk about uh, an, an early experience that he had with the late, great Andy Johns. Like many of us, Dave has had a circuitous path to becoming a full-time musician. And so this is a great one. Let's have a listen. All right, so you are, answer this question truthfully, you are a musician full-time. You support yourself entirely with music. Yes. Okay. How long has that been happening? Um, about two years. Okay. And how was it going? When did you start trying to get on that trajectory? Honestly, I got laid off from my job, and it sort of... When was this? This was in 2010-ish. What were you doing? I was uh, working in property management with Adam from okay. The Drugs Yeah. Um, and some other... Actually, BC Camplight, yeah. Brian Cristenzio was working there. He got laid off. Huh. They just cleaned house of of all the musicians. Um, and that sort of was a kick in the butt to just... Yeah. I mean, it also was a, you know, what they call a grant for the arts. <laughs> Essentially, I think I had a year to figure it out. I don't yeah. know that the transition would have been very smooth if I didn't have, you know, unemployment coming in for a year to huh. kind of get... I mean, we worked on Slave Ambient, which was the drugs record that right. kind of, you know did well, and yeah. uh, I made my first Nightlands record with while collecting unemployment, which, I mean, ethical or not, it's what I did. I, I, I don't know. Why is that unethical? I don't yeah. think that's unethical. Um, you know, I think you're supposed to look for work. Well, you were. Yeah, you so were. I sort of that, was. You, you were. I was. You have a job I found now. it. I found yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, definitions of what that means. Yeah, is, that's, uh, it's a loose thing. Yeah. So, But, I mean, it's... It's something you have to improvise it, and you know, yeah. no matter what, there's no way to just say, "Okay, I'm going to become a full-time musician now," and yeah. boom, all of a sudden it's just working. You just have to kind of figure it out in your own way. And my way was getting fired, and then, <laughs> um, you know, sort of sliding in. And luckily, like yeah. kind of right as unemployment was running out, Slave Ambient right. came out, did well, and we started for the first time playing shows where a lot of people would come. Yeah, and then you get paid more. Yeah. Had you been wanting to do music before that, and you'd been sort of like, well, I got a job now, and I'm sort of picking away at it, or like, what had been going on before then that you needed a kick in the pants? I mean, always was trying. Yeah. You know, always. 
So I never, it was never kind of like a hobby for me. I was always a lifer from, honestly, from even during college, I was sort of, I sort of went to college more just because I didn't know what to do. It just felt like that that all my friends were going to college. So I went to college, but even during that time, I was like trying to figure out how to be a musician. So, um, this, you know, and it didn't really start until I was in my thirties where I was like, I felt like an actual someone who could maybe pay his bills doing it. So, and it's still, it's still hard sometimes because it's not steady. Right. And Brian can attest to that. You know, oh, it's yeah. like yeah. it's just like sometimes you might have a great month or you know, or maybe you have a slow couple months or yeah. something. So Yeah, actually it's funny to if you really think about it, you know one uh uh imp- I would say cultural impression about rock music or about you know, ro- being a rock star mm-hmm. is that it means you have money. Sure. You know? Mm-hmm. If people really saw the lifestyles yeah. some some of some very successful artists yep. have to live in order to keep that, you know, to keep their art, you know, in the forefront of their lives. Right. They'd be th- very surprised. Yeah, I think all the way up, almost to the top of at least the music world that we're familiar with. Yeah. I think I think when you get to the, you know, the Arcade Fires and the, yeah, you know, Justin Vernon's of the yeah. world, then you finally find people that are probably living pretty comfortably. Mm-hmm. But anything below that, and there's yeah. a certain degree of sacrifice that's going on. Yeah. You know. It's interesting. Yeah, and so you've been, you've been willing to make that. I mean, you've been willing to make that sacrifice. I guess. Like, what do you what do you feel like you're sacrificing? Pretty much anything that you would associate with stability. Okay. That is is on the chopping block. Future. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so, and that can mean relationships, and that can mean, you know, just anything you would associate. Just picture a friend you have that lives in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And all the accoutrement right. that yeah, go with that, right. and that's all not really available to you. Yeah, like health insurance. Yeah, <laughs> two cars or a car sometimes. A car. And you know there are exceptions to that. I can think of people that, you know, have all those things, and right. they, maybe they do strange, like out of the box things to make money. Sex sup- acts. Right? Sex yeah. acts. Yeah. You know, gro- <laughs> drugs. You yeah. know, you know, growing shrooms yeah. in their basement, whatever. Yeah. You know, to maybe like supplement their income, but right. you know, so there are exceptions to it, but. At least in my case, um, you know, I just, uh, I knew what I wanted to do and I was like, okay, I'll just, you just sort of have to be ready at all times. You can't have a job. I mean, that's the main thing. You yeah. can't have a job that's going to let you go away for six months a year. Right. Yeah. Well, what have, list off those jobs. I know, I know some of your jobs, but. Um, yeah. So I was a property manager. I, w- I've done the census. I was a census taker. Mm-hmm. I was a telemarketer. I was a janitor. Um, I was a delivery guy. I've done just about everything. You yeah. can, Coffee barista. I was a barista, yep. So just, you know, painted the houses, yeah. you know, just everything. And that's, you know, there's no shame in any of it. Did um, you ever Did you ever think, in a way, that as hard as you were working on those things, it was really for your music? Yeah, I did. And, you know, and I definitely had times where I was... My my big sort of moment of truth was I tried to go to law school. I I, I was like, you know, I have this degree, this undergrad degree... My parents really want me to go to law school. I applied yeah. to Temple how, Law. and I, How old were you? I was probably 29, 30. Oh, wow. So this was not long this ago. This was pre-slave ambient. This yeah, was like okay. I had been sort of playing with the war on drugs for um, probably about four years at the time, five right. years. And right. I loved, I, I was as committed then as I am now, but, you know, we the, the album process was really long and I, I was sort of just, you know, it was kind of that moment of truth, I think, when, how old are you, Peter? 30. You're 30? Yeah. So you're probably hitting that right now. It's like, mm-hmm. that's kind of like, I think... Are you, every, are you in or out? 
Yeah, and it's kind of, or just the kind of thing where you're like, I feel like I'm like an adult. I feel like I should yeah. be doing adult yeah. things. You know, I want, I want to buy a bed. <laughs> like, or, you know, like things that like make you an adult. You just start yeah. thinking like, yeah. I don't want to live like a boy. You know, yeah. I don't want to live in a dorm room or all these things. Yeah. And my, that can manifest in a lot of ways. Some right. people maybe get married suddenly or something like that. Right. In my case, I was like, oh man, I got to go to law school. And I started studying. I took the LSATs yeah. and got into temple law. And I was like, okay. And I actually put a deposit in and I yeah. uh, went, uh, went to the first day of classes. <laughs> Whoa. And I was like, this is just absolutely, what the heck Whoa. am I doing here? This is com- <laughs> just like, I just felt like an alien. And, yeah. and, you know, I was, in that point, I was like, I'm too far in. I can't go back. Yeah. You know, I have to be. I didn't feel like yep. I could change gears. It was like, I, I, I was like, I'm incapable. It's not like I don't, this isn't for me. I was like, I'm incapable of doing this. Right. And so I just sort of like doubled down on music at that point. And you know that doesn't mean I won't, you know, find a new a new path at some point. But no, no, I mean the the whole you're one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is that you're you just proved it. You got in Temple Law, like you're clearly of the you're clear capable of doing a lot of different things. And so I'm sure it, through your life you will find other ways to do it. But Knock you would right. Um, but that is something that you, you you are investing your right. You're you're investing your time and energy, and you're taking a gigantic risk. Mm-hmm. It's very similar to what somebody would be doing by putting themselves into law school, sure, or or by investing in, uh, you know, a a small business, sure. Yeah, you know, it's also the prime of my life. You know, that's another thing. I'm yeah. like, man, I just spent like the prime of my life in Fishtown. <laughs> 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 Um, oh, Fishtown, Philadelphia. You know, yeah. which, yep. and, but, you know, and that, I say that in a way that's like, it sounds like I'm depressed about it, but, in yeah. a, I, you know, there's nothing better to do with the prime of your life than to make rock and roll music, right. I would say. Yeah. yeah. You know, I and Fishtown enables that. And it sure does. There's, it's a magnet for that. So, I'm, yeah. I, you know, I don't have any regrets about it. I'm really, right. I'm really, I could, I'd rather go to law school when I'm 50. Yeah. You know, I won't, but, no, please but theoretically, please I would yeah. rather do that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I'm glad I did that. And yeah. I think, you know, um, it's sort of, I felt, I've, I've felt vindicated in the past few years for making that decision. So just by yeah. the growth of certain projects and stuff. Yeah. What do you, what would you attribute? Can you attribute some of that growth to anything? Is it just hours log? Was there some, have there been strokes of luck? Like what's been going on that allowed you to turn that corner? Um, I can't speak. It's with Nightlands. I I think I'm not sure. That's I feel like I'm a little too inside that yeah. to know yeah. what to attribute that to. I mean, I definitely worked my ass off on yeah. all the Nightlands music I've ever done, and mm-hmm. I felt like it came from a pretty sincere place. I mean, I think another thing is you just I've been working with all these different artists. I've been a sideman for so long, right? And you learn a lot, and you 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 kind of take bits and pieces from each style of you know creation, and you you know, make that into your own. I mean, with the war on drugs, I, I think from the very beginning, people have attached themselves and dedicated themselves to the war on drugs because they thought the music was good, Yeah, which is kind of cool, you know, because music can get pretty political mm-hmm. and people are always sort of looking for the hot new thing and the whatever is sort of on the rise. Mm. They're and also looking for the the quick and easy. The and, quick and easy. And Warren Drugs has no. been anything but quick. Yeah, and easy. we've been yeah. doing it for a long time, and it's always gotten a little bigger. And I think people, you know, people don't, you know, aren't loyal to us 
for friendship reasons or for political yeah. reasons or anything, I think. And it's the same thing, you know, I met Adam in 2004, 2005, and he played me some demos, and I was like, holy shit, this yeah. guy's just on another level. And I was like, yeah. right, right then I was like, okay, this is my number one musical priority hmm. is to make music with this person or with these people, because at the time it was Kurt and Adam. They just seemed like they were on such a, another level. Yeah. Um, it's really funny. It's funny to think about because I think of how uh, I feel like Kurt and Adam in the earliest days were better at clearing a room than anybody I'd ever seen. You know, like when they'd get up on stage and do their like far out freaky stuff, mm-hmm. it would be like, the pe- there would always be people who would be like, oh my God, that was amazing. And, but there would be large yeah. groups of people who would be like, yeah, they would just yeah, they right. leave. They couldn't. They yeah. they were ahead of their game. You know, ahead yeah, of the time. And those yeah. the people who stayed now, I think, are are people who are like in other bands or producers or right. music mm-hmm. writers or something. You know, it's yeah. like five percent of the people would get it, and those five percent were like generally really influential people. And yeah, um, huh. and you know, just from like, and the thing is, I feel like that's been going on all along with the drugs. And yeah. like, we would play a show in you know Boston in two thousand seven, and eight people would come yeah. and then those eight people are still with it. It's, you know, so I think it's just, you know, music was good and it just kind of grew it's, steadily. You're retaining your audience well, right? Yeah. And you know, and also we, we shot the bed live <laughs> for about four years. Like just, we're just confounding audiences mainly because we just didn't know how to pull these recordings off and right, right. we're playing really loud and, and there were a lot of, things happening on stage that we didn't understand and what does that mean um i don't i don't want to get into it too much because yeah, it, yeah. it I, I don't i feel like it would be going into like interpersonal stuff sure um but there were like there was interpersonal dramas that not dramas interpersonal conflicts or tensions that were i think manifesting on stage that involved amps being just dimed out yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like i don't know what to do let's just dime out all the amps yeah and you know this you know it would be a big show in New York with all these writers or yeah. label people and it would just be not good but I think we always failed or um, we, I think we always failed on our own terms in this really non-hammy really genuine way that yeah. never mattered you know what I mean it like we never went up there and there was it was I think people when they saw us they at least knew they were seeing something really real so that we right. didn't lose yeah. anybody you know what I mean like we played a show in Chicago that I've talked about it before but it was just like an utter disaster because it was our first big show and like all these music writers were there yeah. and the label, the whole label came up and um, we were like, okay, this is our big, the first time ever that we're playing this big show. And it was yeah. just so bad that we almost, we kind of looked at each other like, should we just stop and walk <laughs> up the stage? Like we weren't sure if we should continue, yeah. Yeah. but I don't think it jeopardized anything because of the way we did it was, yeah. there was never any hamming going on. It was real. You know, and I don't really know how to um, describe it more specifically than that. Yeah. But I think sometimes you just know when you're seeing something real. So yeah, that I mean that's the connection of the directness that seems to come out of Adam and and you guys. There, and I don't know how else to put it, but directness. You know, like from from something. There's something that's just there's, there's, just right through. Yeah, there's. And, you know, about Adam in particular, there's something kind of magical about Adam sure. <laughs> in a great way. I mean, I think about the Torres episode, you know? Yeah. We, you know, as, as a song was building, it was building and building, and it took a long time to get it where it was. And then Adam stepped in, and his contribution to it was so sparkling, and yeah. it 
it really, it, it, it and, and it wasn't like he came in with any, um, you know, ego or attitude or he wasn't trying to like blow people away. He just, no, he just wanted to participate. He just wanted to participate. Cool. And he, and he even set out the parameters for himself early on. Like, oh, I just brought this, this pedal and this little amp and mm-hmm. maybe I'll try your 12 string. And then the first take could have been the take. Sure. You know? Yeah, he's he's got that sauce. Yeah, so, I thought, yeah, so yeah. So to switch over to Nightlands, well, I guess I want to ask one more thing, um, which is about just the sideman thing. Which is, mm-hmm. would you recommend that as a as a as an approach? Which is like just play with other people to start. If you're like, or you know what I mean? Like, is that is would you prescribe that? Mm, not for everybody. Yeah, you know, I think for. I always had a hard time writing music, you know. Yeah. So for me, it was I think really a really good prescription um, because I didn't really know how to write a song mm-hmm. and I didn't um, know what I wanted to sound like and, yeah. and stuff. And I almost had to find my way through process of elimination by working with people and being like, okay, I don't want to do it like that. Yeah, I don't want to do it like that. Yeah, da 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 da. Um, but I think it's different for everybody. I mean, if you come right out of the gate and you're 18 years old and you're like, man, I'm just writing all these great songs and I love being on stage in front, you know, just do that. But yeah. you no, know, that wasn't me. Yeah. Um, and that's not a lot of people. So I think it's different for everybody. Right. I don't think there's a prescription. So, so now to, to sort of circle into to Nightlands, which is, which is a, a great project and I've been watching it evolve over the last couple of years and I'm really excited with where it's going. Um, but just sort of to go where it, to go back to where it started, when did you decide that you were ready? You're like, okay, I've eliminated enough things. I think I figured out what. Did you decide? You're like, okay, I think I now know what this is. Mm-hmm. Or were you like, I think I have enough confidence to just kind of start doing it? Like, what? What happened where you decided to open that door? Yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty serendipitous. It was kind of a movie like moment where I was yeah. like, okay, yeah, I'm ready. It just felt like I was ready. Um, and I went and I got on eBay and I bought a, t- a tape machine. Mm-hmm. Which one was it again? The 388, the Tascam 388, which I still have and I still use. And it's, I think it's a really cool piece of equipment to, uh, you know, not necessarily for the way it sounds. I just think it, it's just fun to play with. It's, and the, it's the quarter inch eight track. Quarter inch eight track. It's got the tape, tape reels embedded in the body mm-hmm. of the machine. Looks like a gigantic cassette Yeah, it looks like, cassette a, player. Looks like a giant um, four track, but yeah, it's eight track. Yeah. It looks like a vibey four track. Yeah. But, um, and it kind of is. And it's, it's a great way to learn how about recording and it's the best thing for me is it didn't involve a, t- or a computer screen. Yeah. You know, because is that we, important to me? It's incredibly important because yeah. you're, you know, you, it's just so strange to be like, Oh, I'm going to minimize this window here where I was checking my Facebook status. <laughs> okay. Now I'm going to express myself in this other window here. Like, yeah. Like that's just this, you know, it's such a strange thing. <laughs> To yeah. share that yeah. vessel, you know, with right. all the static that is, you know. So it was nice for me, like, to just mm-hmm. be using my ears and and um, making sounds. But, I mean, you know, I just drove out to Marlton and bought a tape machine. And, and it was just, I started experimenting. And I think in the beginning there was, like, I felt really adventurous and, and it, it felt really good. And, you know, there was a lot of, you know, I was very scared. and um, But I think that, I think that's a good thing. I scared in what way? Like this Just could be a sca- train wreck. Scared to suck. Yeah. Scared to be unoriginal. Yeah. Scared to I don't know, be lame. 
Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I think everybody, I don't yep. know if people would admit that, but most bands are musicians, even the people I no, know. I feel that. Yeah. yeah like, I feel, yeah. even all the people I am close with who I think, who I really admire, I think, would admit that, to that. And um, it was pretty awesome when I, like, started. I worked for, like, six months, and I was like, man, I think this is yeah. kind of original and cool. And, um, yeah. And um, Brian's phone is ringing. Sorry. It's an alarm. Um, it's an alarm. Oh. <laughs> Um, and, uh, so yeah, it did feel kind of like a light bulb moment. I was like, all right, yeah. I'm ready. And it's also like, I started saying no to other things. I, I had a hard time saying no to projects for a long time. Yeah. And now I'm, I'm really very good com- at it. Very good at saying, <laughs> nah, yeah, I'm just busy. That. I can't do that. Yeah. You know, because even if I have time to do it, it takes like a piece of you yeah. to like collaborate with somebody. Right. You know, you're putting your juice and your sauce into like this person's project and you're like, yeah. You know, I need to save that up. I need, yep. I need my creative yep. powers for my own stuff, so or whatever. Yeah. So that was really, really fun and rewarding. The uh, if you know the Tascam, the the three eighty eight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like, and you know, I guess full disclosure, I've worked on Dave's music, right? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. but big um, contributor. Uh, yeah. But I, I think the thing I've that you've done that I've never seen anybody do ever um, is is really uh, manipulate pitch with a, an actual physical tape machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about that. Like, how, what, what is... Yeah, what's your process what look is like that? in that context? Um, yeah, I'm really proud of that, actually. And even though I think it's over the heads of most music listeners, and it's also the Nightlands records are pretty densely recorded, so it, it's, it could just come right. off as being like, I'm not sure what I'm hearing right now. Lots and lots of voices, um, yeah. But... Um, in a technical sense, I just did a lot of, well, what I did is I got really into, and this is something that I struggle with a lot, is getting into a, a sort of a joyful, childlike play zone mm. when I'm recording. And if I can get myself there, I know I'll make something good. Yeah. Or to the point where you're just yeah. not thinking about what, whether, you're doing, whether what you're doing is good or bad, or you, know, you kind of get in the moment, yeah. and you're like, ooh, you know what would be really cool or funny or hilarious or... Yeah you know, interesting and you start making these sort of playful decisions almost yeah. like a child would make. And that was totally um, when I, I started, sort of started tripping out on, you know, either recording my voice very slow and then tr- making it androgynous by speeding the tape up right. or vice versa, making it super masculine by slowing it down and then layering those, you know, what if I layered an androgynous voice with a very masculine voice, yeah. you know, five of each. And then I put in 20 of my regular voice, Literally, uh, 20. literally 20. Yeah, literally more sometimes, yeah. actually. And, um, and you're bouncing all these things down? Yeah, bouncing them down, yeah. um, to which is actually, it's super ghetto the way I originally was <laughs> bouncing them. It, you know, it would be like the cord barely reaching across yeah. the thing and, and just like, you know, having to line it up because the tape doesn't play back exactly yeah. the same every time. It's right, a lot of right. just sort of bumping and lining up. Um, hmm. And then, you know, when I got bored with that, I started doing stuff where you can warp the speed of the tape while you're singing. That's the coolest. Um, yeah. Which you can then bend the notes, which you're not only bending the note using the tape speed, you're actually, because as you bend, it changes the timbre because... It turns the, into... Yeah. yeah. goes from deep, guttural male to Mickey Mouse. Mm-hmm. And of know? course, when a tape is recording at a slow speed, there's less information. And when the tape is recording at a fast speed, there's more information. So the fidelity changes literally as you're bending the note wow. and it gets really cool. I mean, it just, I never thought of that part. Of yeah. It, it just, really cha- cool. it just, it's 
You know, and that's it's cool because it's one of the few things you just can't do with, say, Ableton or, or pro. You just can't do that. Well, I mean, you can you can change time and you can change pitch with well, now, but you cannot do that with anything else other than tape. And I think I think actually, you know, this sort of speaks to something I think about all the time, which is people people like to romanticize the idea that you know a genius preconceives something. And then they find the tools to get it. Right. And I think it's actually far more often it's that some tool opens up some process yeah. that mm-hmm. nobody else has. And so when, yeah. when we're talking about people striving for what you said, you know, originality, um, you know, making music that's never been made like this before, yeah. doing things and, yeah. and it being truly and utterly special, in my opinion, it's it's... It's finding the the machinery to mm-hmm. give you a completely right. unique process, and right. I think you your I think the Nightlands records, I think Oak Island especially, is a an, I mean, you know, Again, I think it's a brilliant yeah. a brilliant uh, you know use using of that of that mm-hmm. you know idea. Thank you, and yeah, it, that's so the process of making those two records w- was like all sort of what you were saying, all these like preconceived notions that I had just being destroyed one by one, you know? So first the one, the first one is that like you plan a record out, you have like a genius idea in your head and then you just execute it. I think that probably does happen occasionally to someone, Yeah. but most of the time I don't think it does. And so there's this like sort of hilarious realization where you're like, Oh, it's just kind of like, you just got to work at it. Yeah. (laughs) My mom told me that when I was a kid (laughs) And for some reason, I'm 30 years old, and I'm realizing, oh wait, it's just a lot of work and like trial and error, yeah, and a lot of, you know, sort of getting better at something. Well, and searching, you know, and like searching. you you are, you are exploring it as much as you are directing it. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, play. You use the word play, which is which is both, it's like passive and active in the same mm-hmm. in the same yep. moment. You know. Yeah, I mean that's the place for me. I mean, I don't think that's true for everybody. Yeah. Adam, for instance, to reference him, he's like one of my most frequent collaborators, so I can, I'll, I'll come back to him a lot, but I don't think he, he tends to agonize. Yeah. <laughs> and it works, you know, he, I, I can't question it. it yeah. It's a totally different process, but he's an agonizer. Mm-hmm. He will agonize over a record for two or three years till someone wrenches it from his hands. He never, <laughs> ever will just give it over. Yeah. He will never declare it done. He, someone will wrench it from his hands, and then everyone declares it amazing. Yeah, and I would agree. You know, like so, it's an interesting thing. Yeah, that's not you know. And for me, I like to try to find like this joyful sort of play like place. Yeah. So, and maybe that'll change for me. I'm not sure, but so it's did, just different. Yeah. So did did song structure? Where did that start to play? in? like what I'm hearing you talk about, you're experimenting with stuff. It sounds a lot of that's about tone and timbre and production, melody yeah. and production. Were you fitting those? Did those inform structures? Did you fit them onto structures? Like, sort of what happened? Because there are, you, you do have structures. Yeah, there's structures and they're sort of pop songs. Yeah. I would say most of them are actually pop songs, yeah. even if the production belies that. Um, right. Um, yeah, it's sort of another sort of realization I had was that I had to really start restricting my variables really early. Okay. Um, what do you mean? I mean, I need to com- I need to start making commitments like way early, yeah. like first ste- step. So, you know, in, instead of like leaving the commitments of the decisions to be made later, I had to right. make the commitments right away. So, yeah. you know, if I was I was starting a new song, I would lay down a drum beat, 
um, or drum machine and um, lay that down and then maybe randomly play guitar chords over it. I mean, honestly, that's how the song Nico, which we've referred yeah. to a lot, I just put down a drum beat and I went to my organ mm-hmm. and I just played, I just randomly made up chords. Right there in the moment. Right there in the moment. I'm recording a tape too and it's much harder to edit. So then that was a song. I was just completely committed to it mm. in that moment. And then I was like, all right, I have to make up something with this, you know. I don't think that works for, you know, very few people I know would do that. They, you know, tend to tweak the arrangements and stuff. For me, I was just like, all right, that doesn't work for me because I get lost in infinite possibility really easily. And I get, I go down this wormhole where I'm making decisions and I just sort of throw my hands up and say, I don't know, there's too many options. Let me, let me jump in here and just say for everybody else in the world that, you know, Dave's an excellent musician. And I mean like excellent technically and he's, and he. And and at many instruments, and yeah. from from you know that that ten you know that time from when you were a kid till you wrote your first song, it's not like you didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. You were learning your instruments, you know that they, they come out of you second so like like nothing. Like it's like it's easy, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and so what Dave li- lays down in that in that first few takes with that's loaded with commitment. That's coming from somewhere. That's enabled, sure. I think, by your life leading up to that moment. Sure. And, and, it, and I think anybody else who, you know... Right. That's it, not to say that you just noodled and fucked around yeah. and then we're like, ah, okay, fine. You I know, would like almost that, say it's, yeah. it's not an invitation for people to just spit out anything and yeah. go right. from there. You, you, uh, you know, there's a, there's a level that you're operating at. And it's also, it's sort of trying to circumvent the, the analytical part of it. Right. Yeah. You know, because right. if I'm just sort of, I'm like, okay, I've got this drum beat and I sort of listen to it until I feel like I'm in sort of a spont- spontaneous headspace, and I'm like, all right, boom, this is the moment, gonna, and I'm just going to lay this down. Yeah. And I'm not analyzing at all yeah. right then. you know. And that's tough, because I'm a very analytical person, and yeah. I have to, and I think there's a place for that, especially in mixing. I think mixing is a time when you can really start to yeah. step back and engage right. the frontal cortex. But you want to be in like lizard brain mode yeah. <laughs> when yeah, yeah, you're yeah. recording. I, I, mode, yeah. you know? And that's why a lot of times... Um, I'll do a lot of takes too to kind of and um, yeah. uh, to try to get hypnotized a little bit. When you do a ton of takes, hypnotized, you kind of yeah. get. I think you can kind of get tribal, and you you know yeah. you're just doing ten takes, and you're you're sort of tired. Your hands are tired if you're whatever you're playing, and you kind of right. I think your your analytical brain, which I think usually is a, a barrier during recording. I think it's uh, interesting that you say that because we've talked a lot about how. Generally, recently, and especially because of technology, concept and um, intellect, and and you know uh, the ability to like analyze, have become the dominant forms in many ways, especially for independent music. Is that that's like you're hailed for your brain, you're sure. hailed for all that kind of stuff, and performance and in the momentness isn't talked about in the same sort of way. And so you're you're sort of saying that your process is is working on that side as, as like you're trying to sort of short circuit the like totally the natural. I mean and you're trying to exhaust yourself to get yeah. to a new level it's really interesting I mean how many people I know that I've worked with over my time doing this that you know they, they stop trusting what they do after three or four takes mm-hmm. some people even after the first take sure yeah. and um, to me that's just like that completely um, it makes no sense mm-hmm. you know yep. you're 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 
trying to put yourself at ease. You're mm. you're not trying to just get through this. You're mm. trying to in, to get yourself to a new place so that yeah. what you're doing is truly special. Right. Um, it's in, it's interesting. It's not it's not like that for everybody. No, that, it's that, different. Yeah. And there's you know? the, uh, at the same time a lot of the stuff. There's a lot of first take stuff too sure. on, the, on on the record, and there is right. a lot of diminishing returns as well. Totally, you need to put yourself through that. Mm-hmm. Yep, but be aware, be a, be willing to put yourself through mm-hmm. that. Right. So it's it, you know, right. Know when you're ascending, when that third and fourth and fifth takes mean you're getting to know it better, right? Or when you're actually getting to know it less. I mean, when I'm when I'm doing stuff, I very often like say vocals, perfect example. Yeah. I just take people to the the take where all of a sudden it starts, it's not as good as the previous one. Mm-hmm. It's so easy. Yeah. It's usually like anywhere from take seven to nine or 10. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. I remember Meg Baird. Um, God, man, she, she could sit and play and her guitar and sing the song. You know, her, 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 that would be the, 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 the song would be guitar and vocal. She could sing and play it live all together in, in, in a take. Um, she would play it like I'm not kidding, like 16, 17 times, and mm-hmm. then and then really like serenely just be like, okay, I think I'm ready. Yeah. I'm I'm serious, yeah. you know. And 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 I just anytime I think that of somebody who who sort of yeah. looks at me like I'm crazy for not wanting to go with their first take, mm-hmm. like yeah, I I don't believe you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And if I'm wrong, we'll just go back to that first take. Sure. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. not like we're recording over it on tape. Right, yeah. right. You know? So, what other? Tell me other. Um, uh, what would be sort of technical sides? Like, so you have this. You're you're performing on that tape machine in many ways. Mm-hmm. Are there other? What other elements do you like? Do you find yourself liking to use? Uh, in the tape machine world, or just overall? No, I mean overall when you're because you engineer your own stuff in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. What? Where are you drawing that? Um, well, I don't. And the more I work with other engineers, uh, I, I realize that I don't pat myself on the back and thinking I'm a great engineer. Um, right. But I think I'm an adequate engineer. Sure. And I think that um, records aren't really defined necessarily by the quality of the engineering right. at all, actually. Um, but I guess the big thing that I've, at least on the first two records, and I don't know if I'm going to continue this with the next record, but the two main things I think I experimented with... Um, or layering vocals yeah. and polyrhythms. Right. Um, and so with layering vocals, I, mean, I took it about as far as I could go using the computer that I had right. and the tape machine that I had, you right. know, without just completely destroying my hard drive. <laughs> I mean, we're talking, you know, just massive amounts of vocals that were bounced right. and um, done with different types of microphones and different... Right. How... So, and Brian, you can talk to this because you've also, you, you mixed his last record, but what's the difference between 25 vocals and, like, whatever? I mean, you got up to, like, huge numbers, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess some of the songs... Or even, like, what's doubled versus 20, you know what I mean? Like right. What, what happens? Why, why well, keep if you going think about it, a certain number? Well, if you think about it, the, the, the infinite variable that Dave has in his process is that he can do a vocal with the tape sped down all the way. Right. Then he could speed it down 90%. Then he could speed it down 70%. Right. Then it, and all of those add a different, uh, like, formant texture mm-hmm. to the vocal, right? right. That's, right. that's not a level of variables that most people are working at. Right, right. You know? Right, yeah. It wasn't so much that I was just doing 
I think I would be bored doing, I'm going to do 20 vocals with the same mic, yeah. the same signal path. It right. was never like that. It was kind of like, well, yeah. I'm going to swap out the mic. I'm going to change the tape speed. There's yeah. harmony. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try, you know, doing, um, doubling the harmonies and octaves. And then I also used this harmonizer pedal pretty yeah. pretty heavily on uh, on the second record. I didn't have access to it for the first record. Yeah. And it became a really fun tool because you can yeah. you can get sort of mathematically precise mm-hmm. harmonic intervals, yeah. which are they appe- that appeals to my like geeky side. I try. Yeah. I found that I could go too far with that because I think sometimes the imperfections in human voices are really what pull you in. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I kind of went all the way with using the the uh, harmonizer pedal and, and realized, okay, I got to come back a little bit because I've, I've, I've created computer music. <laughs> yeah. But, I, but, I, but I'm going to say something though, that, that I think that the, the brilliance of that of Oak Island is that somehow you have this completely computerized, massive amount of vocal right. and vocal textures and pitches and harmonies and all this kind of stuff. And yet it's the, 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 there's a personality delivering a singular personality, I think, that is really palpable. That's delivering that those songs. Mm-hmm. Like to me, it's it's amazing for that. It, in other words, it doesn't sound like electronic music. Sure, no, it doesn't. You know what I mean? It no. sounds like some robot. You know that from some like lost time. Yeah. You know, future utopia. You know, like you know, like yeah. I don't know. It, it doesn't. In other words, it's not like it's immediately if you, when you say super computerized. Super manipulated music. I think of like yeah. techno-ish. Right. You know, yeah. it's Auto-tune, not like that at all. No. Yeah. In fact, there's something completely timeless about. It. I mean, I think of it more like, I don't know. It it makes me think of like Isaac Asimov. Sure. Before uh, it makes me before it makes me yeah. think of a, of a rock influence. I mean, and then part of that is I made. You know, I felt I went all the way. I went full computer, <laughs> so to speak, <laughs> and coming back. You know, and it, it was it, that shaped. Know a big part of the fact that I never used gridding ever. Right. A, I don't know how. <laughs> B, I just wasn't interested in gridding things out, yeah. and you know I had to make so. I and I also used a ton of acoustic instruments. Yeah. Hand drums. They're all analog uh, drum machines. Mm-hmm. You know everything. I never looped anything as far as parts and or flew yeah. anything. I, I just so I wanted to have. I wanted a counterpoint to the, this sort of. Um, hard to define computery vocal sound. I wanted yeah. the counterpoint to be this sort of very earthy instrumental thing happening. Right. So I think that, I think if I had, you know, had some, if, if I had gridded, gridded out everything and just had sort of very um, um, techno sounds and stuff like that, I think it would just be like an incredibly boring, you know, or you just sort of, your brain would sort of shut off. You just, it would sound like we, Muzak I've, or I've something. I've heard that before. Yeah. yeah. I think that's yeah. a lot of music. Yeah. yeah there's a lot of music now. It's just made, it's, yeah. it's, it's made sort of assembly line style. Yeah. I don't, I can hear how a song written on Ableton, like I can hear it mm-hmm. when, when I, which sounds strange, but you know when things are looped and you know, even if it's not from a conscious level, you know, mm-hmm when you are constructing things from a cerebral fashion, which is, okay, I have these four different parts, and now I'm just going to sort of play with them like blocks, and there we go, there's a song structure. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, it's its own type of play, but I think that there are... And I'm uh, sure Genius Records have been made that way. Right, because Genius Records have been made every, with almost everything. Every way, right. You know, I but, just don't want to like discredit that style, because I think some I'm people... You, yeah, you, you discredit <laughs> it. You know what? Ableton, come find me. Yeah. yeah. No. 
I'm but it's, I'm sure it's a great tool. I've never experimented with it. But it's fine. Well, it, I, again, get to go back to what I was saying earlier, it's, it, to use a tool that everybody else is using is, is ultimately going to make you make music that sounds like everybody else. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're yeah. using tools that are coming up even with tech, techniques that nobody has used, and you're even pushing them to the absolute limit uh, that that defines that space as yours, you know? And I mean, not, not that that's why you did it, but just that, it, you know, it's, it's, that's, a, that's a, an end unto itself, yeah. you know? So. Were you looking, were you coming at it from a, like, to go back to the analytical thing, were you coming at it from, like, I need something that doesn't sound like everything else? Was that important to you? Um, well, I, d- I certainly wasn't interested in doing something I think I had sort of an unspoken um, MO where I, I just wanted to default to something kind of strange, yeah. you know, because yeah. it's just more interesting for me. And maybe that yeah. comes from being a sideman for so long. Just, just, I just get bored, you know, if yeah. I just was like, did something that was similar to another project I'd worked on. And right. I just, if, I love to laugh when I listen back to songs. Mm-hmm. I know that I'm on the right track if I do a playback and I start laughing, like kind of hysterically. Yeah. Because that means I've, gotten hyperbolic to it you know like i've gone really far and a lot of my favorite bands i think are sort of hilarious you know like who i mean the stones are are fucking hysterical (laughs) like go pull up a youtube video the stones which i wholeheartedly think are one of the greatest bands ever right and they're just they're just they're just funny oh absolutely the music is funny the way Mick Jagger <laughs> sings is funny the way keith richards plays guitar their their lifestyle everything about them their songs i mean Put on any one of those great records, and you'll laugh and you'll love it. Same with you know, I don't know, all these great bands. They're funny because, it, and it's partly because they bring you joy, and it's partly because they don't give a shit. Yeah, and par- and you can sense that you're like, wow, these guys don't give a shit. That's awesome. Yeah. And partly because they're there's such a there's so much hyperbole to what they do. Yeah, right. So they're they're right. like they're like an extreme manifestation of this type of music. Yeah. they're yeah. like the most rock and roll right. rock and roll band ever. That's that based on the blues. They are, and so yeah. they're they're almost. Yeah, Keith Richards is hilarious. Yes, <laughs> and he's also it. a genius. And you can yeah. those things are not mutually exclusive. You can be like, yeah. you are a goofy, funny motherfucker, and you're also a totally like you know one of a kind genius musician. Right. So. I like, yeah, I like that because we've talked about this before. The the idea that you can laugh at, you can laugh not even at, you can laugh with something, and it can it is not a symbol of your ridicule. Yeah. You know, it's not a, it, it's a, it's a different way for you to use laughter. And I think oftentimes you think if you're laughing at somebody, it's because you think that there's something shitty about it. Yeah. About or it, even, you know, or, or even maybe stupid. like, um, it's not even, uh, it's like, it's not even like it's humorous in a weird, yeah. it's, I don't know how to explain yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not a joke. It's not a joke. Yeah. It's, it's not like comedy. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I don't, cause I don't really like funny music very much. No, like, this oh, isn't a weird alley. You aren't, you're not going to Yeah, exactly. Weird, like weird I don't really like comedy in music yeah. that often. I mean, I guess occasionally, but for the most part, I'm not interested in that. Yeah. But like the Beach Boys are another good example. Like that's yeah. a hysterical band. They're hilarious. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there's not enough time in this podcast to talk about why they're hilarious and they're not trying to be (laughs) no i know (laughs) at all and and you're not necessarily criticizing them by not at all they're probably my favorite band ever yeah so um that's for another one you'll come back yeah we'll come back beach boy special Mm -hmm. um so okay so here's something that people that we reach will find interesting yeah uh dave recorded an album with andy johns yeah i did who recorded led zeppelin and who recorded When the Levee Breaks. 
Hmm. Yeah, he recorded, you know, uh, Exile on Main Street. Yeah. And Marquee Moon. Yeah. And right. I mean, his his credits. And he just died last year. Yeah, he died last year. And I was legitimately upset and shaken up when I heard that. Um, he was like a really sweet guy. But, uh, you know. The, so what's the story of that? The story of that is um, my first rock and roll band that I was in when I was about 23. It was called Pepper's Ghost. And we were a Philly band. And mm-hmm. we um, got a record deal with Hybrid Recordings, which was uh, affiliated with Sony Records. Yeah. And it was sort of the death rattle of the big money days of yeah. rec- I mean it was honestly right as the industry was sort of the air was sort of coming out you know oh, so yeah. so these this was a label that was still working on the 90s sort of scale yeah so they flew in Andy Johns and we went up to Shorefire Studios in Jersey and we yeah. spent a few months up there which is wow it's really cool that i i you know for a while it was a tragedy because the band sort of imploded and mm-hmm. We got dropped and all the stereotypical things that happened to major label bands happened to us. So it was sort of a painful memory. But now I've, I'm old enough that it's, it's such a great memory that I got to participate in the big label thing. You know, big label spending. I, got, I saw it. And yeah. we, I, we, you know. And you got to work with a legend. And I got to work with a guy who um, was there big time. He smoked his first joint with Jimi Hendrix. Wow. He learned to, to splice tape. Um, with Steve Winwood, and he, you know, worked on the Blind Faith sessions, and I mean, just like he was so in the room for every, you know, he came yeah. from yeah. It, it, the things, the things he's seen, and and the stories he had go way beyond his credit list. Yeah, you know, I mean, and it's just crazy. But yeah, I mean, any, anybody who knows the story of when the levee breaks, I mean, how many people have retold that story again and again? He was there. Yeah, he was the person who like captured that, that it. That was him. Yeah, that was he, him. He mic'd that drum set. Yeah, and. He put the, put the thing in the stairwell or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, and I will also say that it was also kind of a, a sad experience because he was really, really far gone in his alcoholism, mm-hmm. which killed him, uh, yeah. well, you know, yeah. about 10 years later. But, um, you know, so he was drinking eight bottles of wine a day Ugh. during recording sessions. Whoa. This was his, this was him, you know, moderating to the point where so he could try to work. This was him being like, this is what I need to do in order to not have DTs, basically. And I'd never seen, you know, wow. I have a lot of friends who drink pretty yeah. heavily, but, I mean, this is, an, this is like professional-level alcoholism. I mean, he was drinking just... I mean, he would have a big glass of water by the console that he was drinking all day long, and that turned out to be peppermint schnapps. We didn't realize that until about halfway through the sessions. That he, was just, he was just, like, drinking... A full glass of... A full glass of peppermint, peppermint schnapps and eight bottles of wine... Give or take a day. It, does, it sounds made up. Doesn't even sound like that. It doesn't possible. seem. But he's also granted the guy was six four and two hundred fifty, two hundred seventy five pounds. So yeah. he's a big man, and oh my just, god! And you know, and it was kind of sad for a bunch of kids. We were we thought it was really cool, and yeah. we were like, tell us more more stories about you know, jumping Jack Flash, or tell us about you know that time you, you know, the thing with the Rod Stewart thing. You know, he had all these. He loved holding court, but he seemed a lot more <laughs> a lot more comfortable holding court. In, yeah. in the control room. Yeah. I mean, then uh, actually producing the record. Right. And I think the record kind of shows that it yeah. didn't age very well. So, so actually, I was not aware of that. So that that's something that I find interesting. And so, that did that shape how you have approached music since, like, not just working with Andy Johns, but like, um, 
that time in that your life. That time and, and seeing that and then watching everything kind of fall apart. Like totally. What, and that's fascinating to sort of, that you had that window. You were right there on that transition. Mm-hmm. Were, you, were you very aware of what was happening as it was happening or did that not come until later? Um, well, it's, I, certainly in the moment I was like, wow. I mean, because we were recording this with Andy Johns and yeah. he was like, you boys are going to be filthy rich. <laughs> You're gonna be rich. You're gonna be. Rich. I mean, we were just, and we believed him. You know, I just yes. remember being like, "Holy shit!" Like, I'm yeah. gonna do it. And you know, and then the record comes out, and nothing happened, and you know, we just kind of things fell apart. And I just that, and then I sort of, you know, it was sort of a realization. But it absolutely shaped my trajectory since then because I just remember being like, "I don't want anything to do with that ever again." With that that type of world. I don't those, want those expectations that, or that just that way me. of making music. Like I don't yeah. want to be in a studio and be thinking about, we're going to be rich or we're going to be rock stars or we're going to get laid. Yeah. Like, cause that's what we were thinking. We were like, man, we're going to get fucking so much pussy. We're going to like, <laughs> we're going to get, yeah. we're going to be like huge. And it just, it, I look back and be like, dude, what a, it was so lame yeah. and embarrassing. Yeah. And I just, I like when I, I sort of, wanted to close the door on that forever and just be like, I, if I'm going to make music, I want to make the best music that I don't give a shit. You know, I'll be, yeah. I hope I can support myself, but I'm, and that's kind of when I completely, right as that was ending, I had met Adam and Kurt and I just remember being like, okay, recalibrating compass. Right. Cause these, I mean, these guys weren't sitting around talking these guys were sitting around talking about records. Yeah. And, or BC or BC, who was a huge, another, yeah. Right around that same time I met Brian and, um, I met, uh, a bunch of people. I met, you know, the guys from the Capitol years. Yeah. I met um, Adam Arkaraji. I met Brian McTeer. Um, people who had, you know, this incredible passion for records yeah. and making them. Like, man, yeah. I love this record. Wouldn't it be cool to try to make a record as good as this? Yeah. yeah. Like, wouldn't that be fun? Like, yeah, that's what I want to do. Yeah. And I totally recalibrated and, you know, I'm, I'm thankful I had that experience now. It's funny, like, I look... At what a, it was like it's like night and day, you know, yeah. where I was. I was also 23, you know, yeah. at the time and, you know, kind of had stars in my eyes, but. Can't tell you. I mean, when I was 23, I wasn't doing anything like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, no. I mean, I, 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 when I was 17, I thought I would be doing something like that when I was 23. Sure. <laughs> you know? Sure. But, I mean, that's a really unique experience. Yeah, it was cool. And, you know, it's also cool to like, to make a record on that budget. I mean, we spent. Yeah, what was that budget? Um, at least $100,000, you know, on a, on a record. Oh Maybe God. more. I don't know. We spent uh, just a ton of money on, wow. on a record. I mean, I remember... And, we, and it wasn't necessarily for the better of the record itself. It just was, that's how you did it. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it was to the detriment of the record. Yeah. I think the record, if that record's good at all, and I haven't listened to it in a while, and I probably won't, but if it is good at all, it's in spite of the way it was made, I think. You know, because, mm-hmm. I mean, it was just... A bloated experience. There was a lot of bloat, yeah. you know, and it was, um, and I honestly, and some of the people um, who are, will remain nameless, who were the A and R reps and the yeah. the label suits, were just the worst kind of people. I mean, the worst kind of people who didn't understand anything, and their only technique was to throw money at, at like at a question mark. They're like, oh shit, we don't really know what to do here. Let's just spend twenty thousand dollars. This, this week to try to hope yeah. that we hope that helps because they just were devoid of ideas and devoid of like any legitimate passion about music. It was not all of them. Um, Al Cafaro was the label owner and he's a legend. Yeah. He was the president yeah. of A&M for a long time. 
And I remember him being a pretty sweet dude and seemed like a record guy. He seemed like he, get, he, he was like passionate about right. music. But a lot of the sort of the mid-level dudes were just douchebags. And yeah. I just knew that I didn't want to be involved with you that wonder, scene. Yeah. You wonder now, all these many years later, how many of those guys are still in music? Uh, yeah. Probably none. Yeah, I, I think they probably... Or they worked their way up, sadly. Well, no, no, I, there's no up. I mean, from back then, you weren't going to work your... The only place you could work up to doesn't exist anymore. Sure. Yeah. And they, I, mean? I think they probably... And they all, I don't think they could have... They were unable to adapt. You know, they weren't going to adapt to this new this new model, you know? I'm sure Al and Al Cafaro and his cohorts are doing fine because they probably made their millions, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm so I'm I'm really lucky I had that experience because it was like one of the first things I was like, all right, don't want to do that. Yeah, <laughs> don't do anything like that. Yeah. Although, you know, tip of the cap to Andy because he was right. he was pretty true blue. I kind of wish I'd known him when he was in his prime. Yeah, I did have Easter dinner at his house, which was just the vibiest experience of my life. <laughs> <laughs> just a big closet full of gold records and platinum records. Wow, wow, wow. But so that sort of leads me to one of the one of the last things I want to talk with you about is where do you want to go and and so you've seen the excess of the old and you've also seen like the success of the old I suppose mm-hmm. or had glimpses of that but you also sound like you have pretty um in some ways humble expectations at least from the financial side of things like I it seems like what you're really interested in is the integrity of your art um, but I'm wondering where you sort of feel like this can take you now. Well, the sort of sad truth is that the you have to have a lot of luck to get to make serious money now. Yeah. Um, just because the few people that I know who made a lot of money in music, yeah. and I do know a few people who have made you know millions of dollars right. making music. Um, and they're just kind of got lucky. That doesn't mean they're not talented, right? But they're just not. It, the the money they made wasn't proportional to their talent. You know, it was right. just like I know tons of people who are talented. Yeah, most of my friends are <laughs> as talented yeah. as these people as yeah. these people, and they were yeah. just very lucky. So my kind of thing is, um, you know, I'm just going to do what I do, and maybe I get lucky, maybe not. But yeah, um, part, sometimes I think my destiny is just to have the most kaleidoscopic musical experience, and then write a book about it. Yeah. Yeah. Just because, you know, that just seems, it just, sometimes I'll think about things that have happened, like, man, it's so crazy that all these things could happen. And, yeah. and you know, maybe that, maybe it has a bad ending, maybe it has a happy ending, I'm not sure. Right. But I'm not sure. Right. I don't, if you, you, I don't think you can have a super long view right now because of the way the industry is evolving so rapidly. I mean, I, I, Brian, do you have like a, a 10 to 15 year plan with what you're doing and with weather vane, or do you just keep try to keep it like a two or three year plan? Cause I think yeah, I would go crazy if I was trying to think of a 10 or 15 year plan. We tried to have uh, long I think, range plans. I think for a while. I, I actually think for right now, I think for the first time in, yeah. in the last decade, I feel like I can start to see the 10 years from now. Really? And, and it is through yeah. weather vane, not through yeah. the recording studio. Right. As much as I, my greatest in ta- talent is always going to be working with people in the recording studio. But um, I'm not sure that the that the cosmos is going to always provide for that, sure. you know. But in terms of the future, um, I I think it's starting to. Uh, well, I think it's starting to uh, make itself kind of clear. Good. Which is cool. And you I guys are really good about that. Yeah. And you you know you own a studio or you run a studio and you improvised. 
you know? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. Weathervane is like the ultimate improvisation. It totally it really is. is. It continues to be. Yeah. I so, mean, yeah. sure. This right now, what we're doing is like mm-hmm. total, uh, this idea is. Yeah. I mean, what is it? Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns. That was September of 2008. Weathervane was launched on January 1st, 2009. Great. That's awesome. <laughs> you know? in, in memoriam of Lehman Brothers. Yeah. No, I mean, no. Just, just despite... We have, um, a, we have a plan. It was actually... Uh, it, was, it was... I think it was that... At, at the time, it was something I knew I always wanted to do. I'd been working on the idea for about seven years or six years. But I think the practicality of it was I didn't want the studio to have literally zero people walk through it. Mm-hmm. that next year and I knew that the yeah. economy was fucked completely sure. and this was a way to make it so people so the studio would keep being used and you know but it obviously yeah. turned out to be something way huger and more than that so yeah. I guess the three things three th- one of three things has to happen in the music biz you either get out because it's not going well you get super lucky and you yeah. make a living doing it or you improvise and then you succeed right. in that way you know right yeah. You know, so hopefully one of the latter. Well, and I guess one of the things I think about, especially as I stay in the creative realm longer and longer, is that, I mean, for a long time, our business model was don't quit. Mm-hmm. That was pretty much it. Like, yeah. we didn't have a ton of answers to a lot of different things, and we couldn't articulate a lot of them very well. But it was like, the real failure is the one where we're like, we can't do it. Sure. Yeah. That's true with music. I think think it's true with with, uh, so many different things. And that's like to hear you saying, like, I was just going to stay in this. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. just going to stay in this. Like, that's in some ways one of the biggest indicators of success. Just like, you can't knock me out of this. Like, yeah. And and, do it. And the greatest or the worst thing that can happen to any musician, in my opinion, is to feel like you failed. Yeah. You know, because I've seen it just destroy. Some of my friends who yeah. made a record and it maybe not like a ton of people didn't listen to it or right. it got a bad review or you know kind of, they made a record they worked really hard on it and just kind of came and went and they just felt defeated and and then they, that that killed them they just eventually like sort of slumped their shoulders and like left music and they stopped making music so it's just like they felt like they failed so why was that because they had poor expectations like what what was going on. Like what? What makes it? What makes a musician? And, and I guess what what makes a musician fail? And what do you? What have you done to avoid that? Or have you felt that way? Um, I don't. No, I I don't feel that way. And like you know, the night. It's cool to talk about these Nightlands records because it, it's it's fun to think of them as existing still because I made them, and was really proud of them, and then put them out and kind of moved on. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I don't think I. Maybe it's just because I'm stubborn, or maybe it's because I've. It could be just because I've had success in other in with the drugs and right. some other things. Right. But yeah, you just have to some way delude yourself or you know, to me like, you know, if you yeah. believe in the record you make that that you made, then you can't fail. Yeah. You know, do you think it's good? Yes. Oh cool. Then you made a good record. Right. Success. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Because I mean, you know, like a million records come out a year now. So Yeah, I think that's actually the actual statistic. (laughs) It's a million records. Actually, it's funny. I mean, you know, if you think about it, you know, we've done a lot of talking with musicians, especially over the last couple months in in preparation for this podcast and and stuff. But, you know, where we're talking, we're talking with some musicians who are well-known and their band shuts down after a 10-year career. And the individuals kind of 
pick up from that and say, well, I, you know, I want to keep doing this. And so they, they go from being a well-known band to, being, to having, starting from scratch. And when you confront them with the idea that it's going to be different and that they're going to need to improvise and they're going to need to do something different. And adapt. Yeah. And adapt. A lot of people's response is, I, I don't want to do that. I just want to make music. Right. Or I just want things to stay the same in some fundamental well, but, way. But when they say, I, I just want to make music, I mean, the ultimate answer is, well, then just make music. Yeah, just do it. I mean, that doesn't, if, if you just want to make music, well, I mean. No one's stopping you from having a hobby. Yeah, you know? no one's stopping you from recording your music. Sure. You know, you're, what you're really saying is, I want to be a famous musician. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, a, that's you want never going to be yours. To, validation. Yeah. External validation. Does that matter to you? Um, yeah, mm-hmm. of course. You know, everybody wants to be... Um, I mean, I think the difference maybe for me is I probably... The, the validation that I probably want is from my peers more. You know, I want my friends to dig my music. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah. I'd be, who, who doesn't want that? It's like, you'd be lying <laughs> yeah. if you say you don't want that. Right. I don't really care if the... Ma- you know, I, and I also like to support myself, but... Right. Um, you know, I guess I just want to make music that I believe in and that my, my friends like. <laughs> but, um, yeah. yeah, you know, it's, yeah. I guess I'm, I have a pretty thick skin to bad reviews or yeah. stuff like that. I definitely... Was uh, that forged in the early part of your career or has that always been that way? Probably forged in the early part of my career. Probably forged with my parents. My parents are pretty harsh critics. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Of you or just in general? In general and of, of okay. music and of me. They've never sugarcoated what they thought, Yeah. Um, which is, I think it was hurtful in the beginning and now I'm like yeah. sort of thankful for it. Right. Because I, you know, I, I really can brush it off very, very easily. Right. right. And I've actually learned to just not read them. Yeah. You know, yeah. just don't read the reviews ever. No matter what. Don't read the press. Don't read the tweets. Don't read anything. Right. Just doesn't matter. It's there. But if you don't, you can just really shut your eyes to it. It's quite yeah. easy. And you know what? They pretty much regurgitate the same crap anyway yeah. over and over again. So it's and actually it's usually the press release that you send yeah. them. So. so it's pretty easy to shut it out. It's, yeah. you know. Yeah. Cool. Do you have other thoughts? Nope. No, man. This was awesome. All right, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I love that man. I know you Dave do. Dave Hartley. Yeah. The Weathervane Podcast is a production of Weathervane Music and was edited by Matthew R. Poyer. Today's theme music comes from a remix by Manu K of the song New Skin that Dave played bass on for the Torres episode of Shaking Through. Check out the episode along with countless other remixes by Manu K and others at weathervanemusic.org slash shakingthrough slash Torres. Your hosts are me, Brian McTeer, and Peter English who has decided to put all of his eggs in one basket, a podcast (laughs) called The Long Play. And you can find out more if you're into that kind of thing at thelongplaypodcast.org. This has been incredibly fun, Peter. Thank you for doing this. We wish you the best, of course. And you have a fallback plan if this doesn't work out. Whatever, dude. (laughs) (laughs) All right.